We're fortunate to have Nate Sanderson on this episode. Sanderson is a highly successful girls basketball coach in the state of Iowa. I said Iowa, not Idaho. You probably know Sanderson from the Coaching Culture Podcast and his work at the Thrive On Challenge or Talk. It is a plat. It is through this platform where Sanderson has helped coaches around the world create strong cultures within their programs. Coach Sanderson, thanks for talking some basketball with us today. How's everything in Iowa? Well, it's going great. Uh, we're looking forward to the start of spring year, hopefully soon. But uh, yeah, excited to be here and talk a little hoops here today. All right. So I kind of wanted to focus on that uh, that culture aspect, and there's a couple of different directions that we're going to go. But I just, you know, obviously it's the end of the season, so a lot of coaches are kind of you know, at that, at that spot where either they're getting feedback or maybe they're not getting feedback. So anyway, I just wanted to ask you straight up, straight up, how can, how can coaches make an end of year program review meaningful to all of the stakeholders? So we're assuming that a coach does do an end of year review. How can they make that uh, worth their while? Yeah, I think for me, that's been a bit of an evolution over time. You know, when I've, I've been coaching, this was my 21st year as a head coach this past season. And I've probably been doing some kind of a formal, you know, exit interview process or end of the year process with our players and assistant coaches, maybe just for the last seven or eight years, really. And so, you know, prior to that, it was just my own reflections and kind of looking back at the season with my assistant coaches. But we've instituted a little bit more formal process to that. And I think we've benefited from that in a lot of ways. And, you know, JP and I, when the work that we do with coaches, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Some coaches like to do a, a Google survey and just ask some general questions about just their satisfaction with the season and how do you like practices, you know, and some of that kind of thing. And you can get some useful data out of that. Um, I know, you know, a couple of coaches like to do that anonymously. Some like to have their players put their name on that so that they can follow up and have conversations. Uh, we've found what I get the most out of is just meeting with every player and every coach uh, after the conclusion of the season and really just sitting down and talking extensively about their experience. And what I've really honed in on, I think this year, we've done it better than any year in the past, and hopefully we'll figure out how to do it even better next year. But I'm really trying to understand the perspective of every player on our roster, from our starters to our rotation players, to our reserves, to our JV players, and what that experience was like for them from all of those different perspectives so that I just have a, a better sense of when I make decisions or when we do things a certain way, you know, how that's experienced by everybody on the roster rather than maybe just, you know, the few at the top. So let's talk about yourself and kind of this evolution to where you've gotten. I mean, how have you changed as a coach? Are there some things that you can point to that you said, I used to do it this way, uh, but now I do it this way? Well, I think there's a lot of big things and little things. You know, I can talk about this year just as an example. Our two biggest takeaways from our our exit interviews this year, I think number one is that there's a, a perception, and I, I don't receive this with condemnation or, you know, as criticism negatively from our players. I think it's just a de description of what reality was for them this year, that it's hard to move up in basketball. Um, and I heard that from a couple of seniors. I heard that from a couple of kids that are like eight, nine, 10, you know, kind of on the ladder for us that once we settle into our rotation, it doesn't feel like it matters what you do if you're on the back end of the rotation or on the outside looking in. And so I don't know necessarily yet that that means we're going to change anything, but it's a perspective that I hadn't really considered before. And so the other piece to that is making sure that 
did those players, regardless of what their role was, feel valued, even if they felt like it was hard to move up? And I think in that case, we got a lot of affirmation that for the most part, players did feel like they were valued in their role, even if that was a scout team role or a reserve role or coming off the bench. Um, but it has made us think a little bit about how we structured our practices. Um, did we give players, you know, the twos, so to speak, in the depth chart, a chance to compete directly with the ones to give themselves a chance to demonstrate that they are better maybe than the person that's in front of them or they're catching up to them in that competition. Um, we got a little bit of feedback from, again, players coming off the bench that sometimes they felt like they weren't always as prepared coming into games because they weren't getting as many repetitions in a pregame scout as what our starters were. So number eight for us, Josie Niehaus said, you know, I got a turn. I'd come in and play two and a half minutes in the first half but I only maybe got a handful of repetitions. And so I knew the scout, but I didn't get to work through the scout as much as people that were in front of me. That makes it harder for me to compete, to get more time. I never thought about that before. That's a great perspective, you know, that we hadn't considered. So, you know, we think about things like that. Um, and then again, thinking about just, are we doing enough to value everybody? You know, even players that are swinging between JV and varsity, do they feel appreciated? You know, are we giving them the same level of feedback that we are our starters? Are they improving? Do they feel like they improved as much as what our starters felt like they improved, you know, because of the way we're managing repetition? So some of that's uh, to be determined once we get together as a coaching staff here in April. We'll, we do the autopsy is what we call it. We go through all the notes from the exit interviews and then we just talk through, you know, circumstances or things that come up like that as we start to plan for the next season. I think the other thing that I take away from a lot of this is just little things, you know, like every every coach is going to hear at some point that their film sessions are too long. <laughs> so, you know, our players don't necessarily have solutions to that but we start to think a little bit differently about it. We did less film than we did last year. I think they appreciated that. We could probably pare it down a little bit more for next year. Feedback we get every year that I'm still not great at is getting out on time, you know, and I know that's hard for coaches, but players really, really appreciate when they know when practice says we're done at 5.30, that they can schedule a haircut appointment at 5.45 and know that they're not going to be late. We were better with that last year, probably than any other year that I've coached but there were still nights that we kept them longer. So we will have conversations with our incoming seniors next year about how can we make sure that we're getting everything done that we need to? Cause it is a two way street. Players have to help us with that too. But I think they recognize that I'm committed to trying to co-create a better experience for them. And so our openness, both to suggestions and feedback and solutions, I think just reinforces the process that players understand. We want to understand their perspective, we want to work on making it better alongside them. And then hopefully they get to experience the benefit of that from next season. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, creating a filter. I mean, you've got all this data. So I kind of think of two ways um, that you can approach it is probably that there's some data that is uh, maybe not worth considering. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's fair or not, but you go through and say, okay, well, you know, this is something that we can't change. But then also like, having this information and deciding like how much do you want or how much should you change if that makes sense? Like, cause you know, I'm sure a new coach could be getting all this information and then saying, okay, I've got to completely change everything I'm doing. Whereas, you know, is that, uh, is that the right thing to do? 
Yeah, I think that's always going to be a challenge, you know, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. I think number one, one of the reasons that we don't use anonymous feedback is because we do want to have an understanding of where it comes from. I don't do a survey because I want to sit down with the players and I want to explore their opinion and try to understand why they think the way that they think. So if a player, let's say Josie as an example, you know, here she says, I didn't feel like I had a chance to compete or show what I could do because of these reasons. Well, I could see that as criticism and say, you know, I could interpret that if I just read that on a survey. It sounds like she's complaining that it's not fair, that she's a victim, that it's the coach's fault. When I talk to her one on one, I don't get that sense at all, number one. But number two, it's almost this this Ted Lasso approach of, you know, I want to be curious not judgmental. And I think that's a perspective that has helped me understand my own communication a little bit better as I have communicated all year long with this player and one-on-ones and, you know, during practice, before practice, whatever it is. But the way that my communication is perceived is not always the way that I intend, right? And so the more questions that I can ask just to understand, I may not agree at the end of the day that You know, maybe I feel like, you know, Joe's, we gave you enough opportunities to compete. Here's what we were measuring. This is what we saw you do in JV. Like, I don't feel like my, our decisions as a coaching staff were threatened necessarily, but I am interested in how she came to that conclusion because I think that that helps me grow as a coach. Now, if you get something that's off the wall, I'll give you another example. We had a JV player, odd situation this year. She came to practice for four days and then quit. And then the AD had a conversation with her, asked me to talk to her again. And the start of the second week of practice, she came back. So she's just a JV player. So she didn't dress varsity um, and wanted to leave in the first place for various reasons and now decided to come back. Well, at the end of the year, she just ripped me a new one in her exit interview. She did it with one of my assistant coaches um, and just talked about how she didn't feel valued. She felt like The varsity starters were treated differently than everybody else. She didn't have a chance to improve. She didn't like the way practices were. On and on, very, very, I mean, one of the most negative (laughs) exit interviews that we've ever had, right? And so I do think there's a point there where you have to look at that and say, well, we're not going to change everything because one out of 16 kids articulated this negative experience, but it has created great conversation about why does she think that way? And again, I have to filter that a little bit through. And this is why we like doing it individually with players, because we can ask follow-up questions. Does some of that come from her parents? Does some of that come from what her unrealistic expectations were for the start of the season? Yes. You know, so that takes a little bit of the edge out of it. So, you know, and talking to my assistant coach after she did the interview, you know, she just said this girl was very bitter because she expected when she came back, she'd get to play varsity or she'd get to dress varsity. And that just wasn't going to be the case, you know? And so I do think that we're trying to understand that feedback from where it comes from. And then also we do have to filter that a little bit through and recognize that that's one out of 16, you know, and our other 15 players didn't share anything that was even remotely, you know, that negative. And so you do have to weigh it a little bit sort of with the preponderance of evidence there. Um, But I think it's better to have it and sift through it than it is to wonder what players were actually thinking. What role do parents play in kind of this feedback uh, situation, if any? Yeah, you know, I think various coaches that we've worked with in our program value, and I don't even know if value is the right word, encourage feedback from parents in different ways. 
I know some coaches that they'll send a survey anonymously to parents and ask about the parent experience and their daughter's experience, uh, their perceptions of the program, what recommendations would they make, you know, that we need to improve in the offseason, that sort of thing. I'm probably on the other side of that spectrum where we don't solicit any feedback from parents, but we but we frame that in a way that is beneficial to the kid, you know, and so we'll talk to our parents during the um, you know preseason meeting with parents. And I ask for their permission to have the difficult conversations and to solicit the criticism and the feedback and the questions from players directly without parents being the agent of the player. And we tell them that because we want the players to be able to grow in their ability to have those conversations because, you know, in many ways, I'm like what their boss is going to be five, 10 years down the road. They have to be able to take feedback. They have to be able to ask questions when they don't understand. They have to be able to see from a, a you know an authority's perspective, so to speak. We're trying to help them grow into all of those things. And we use this analogy with parents that, you know, <laughs> I joke about this in our parent meeting. I say like parents that want to come in and go to bat for their kids. Number one, I get it. Okay. I've got, you know, little girls and they're getting into sports and other people are coaching them. And I get it. Like that can be difficult. But here's the thing. If dad came in and said, you know, hey, I heard that you were doing left-handed layups in practice yesterday. And I've heard this, you know, about kids and they're wanting to meet one-on-one -on -one with coach. They're just not comfortable, you know, doing that yet. So I'd like to come in, you know, and have this meeting and she can be present as well. Well, that's fine, I guess. It helps to facilitate some communication maybe. But my analogy is, look, if we were doing left-handed layups and dad came in and said, you know, Sally's not really comfortable doing left-handed layups. If you don't mind, I'd like to come in and just do it for her. And maybe if she sees how it's done, you know, that'll make her more comfortable. We would laugh at that and scoff at that and say, that's ridiculous. She has to do the layups in order to get better. And so then we tell our parents that we're going to give them opportunities to practice. So we have consistent one-on-ones during the season. We listen to them. We ask good questions. Again, it's sort of like these mini interviews, you know, that we do during the year. And we're going to coach them in how to do it, you know, so that they can grow if the parents will respect and allow us to be able to guide them through that. And I think the same thing that applies at the end of the season, we're, we're trying to co-create with players here. And I think parents and coaches can agree. We want to be effective on the court and we want kids to have a great experience, but they're the agents, right? In this equation, as much as anything else, they have to figure out how to make these systems and strategies work how to create a good positive environment for each other during the season. And we just want to, to be servants of the players in that process apart from parent involvement. That's kind of where we're at. So I want to kind of shift over to assistant coaches now and ask you a couple of questions about what uh, the roles of coaches or of your assistant coaches. But uh, I also know between head coaching jobs, you took a year and were an assistant coach. And so what did you kind of learn, you know, between uh, between those two head coaching experiences and being in that assistant role? Yeah, that was an interesting, you know, experience to I was on the bench for 18 years as the head coach and then took a year as a volunteer assistant for a close friend of mine here in the area. Um, and so, you know, as a head coach, you get used to some things, right? So on the one hand, you know, you're used to practices being run in a certain way and um, expectations for players being at a certain level, you know, in terms of how things should be organized or how hard they should work or how quickly we should get in and out of a drill or what drills we should be doing. So 
stepping away from that sometimes can be a little bit of a challenge. At the same time, I don't have to deal with schedules. I'm not doing bus times. I'm not reading emails from parents. I'm not sending the weekly email. You know, there's there's a freedom as an assistant to be able to really focus on the basketball and the relationships, which is the part of coaching that I enjoy the most. And that was probably good learning for me as much as anything else is kind of reflecting on, do I have to be a head coach to feel like I can be satisfied as a coach? And I realized that I don't, you know, it, for me, it's about the opportunity to interact with kids. That's what I love the most about coaching. And then just getting into the game itself, I got the opportunity to do both of those things as an assistant. And so um, that was really interesting learning about myself. Um, but it is cool to go into someone else's program. The coach that I got to work with has been a friend of mine for a long time. We competed against each other when I coached at Springville. We were rivals in our league. And um, to be able to be behind the curtain and kind of see what they do uh, was really interesting, you know, to compare to some of the things that we've done over the years. So certainly a great opportunity to learn. I was able to take some of those things into my current job now at Mount Vernon. So let's talk about the role of your assistants now. I mean, obviously you talked about them actually doing these these meetings, um, these exit interviews. Uh, what are some other things that you uh, ask of your assistant coaches? Well, I mean, we're organized like a lot of programs probably are in terms of, you know, I have a varsity assistant. I've got a head JV coach. I have a head freshman coach. Uh, I don't know what numbers are like for girls basketball in Idaho, but for us in Iowa, they're declining every year, our school included. So we had only 16 girls out this year, still had four coaches, which is great. Certainly blessed to be able to be able to have that many coaches in the gym at one time. So this season, we kind of had to distribute our responsibilities a little bit differently because we just had JV and varsity. Um, and so our JV and our, our freshman coach kind of took on uh, the role of the, the post whisperers. They took the posts in practice. Um, we'll divide out our scout responsibilities. And that's one thing that I've actually really enjoyed about my staff here at Mount Vernon is I don't do any of the scouts anymore. So we have four coaches, uh, another volunteer that kind of helps us out a little bit on the side. And so, you know, they'll take every four opponents, you know, they'll write the scout and they pull the clips on huddle, put the, uh, the reels together for the kids. I still present it in our pregame film and I'll edit the scout, you know, and add some of my thoughts to it or whatever. But uh, that's really freed me up to be able to watch a lot more of our own film this year and be able to show our kids more of our own film than we ever had in the past. So they do a great job with with that kind of preparation. Uh, my varsity assistant coach is responsible for the scout team. So when they're putting things in or taking on the personality of, you know, some of our opponents, uh, that's his job. And then you know, I mentioned the one-on-one, -on -one inter you know, kind of interviews or the check-ins that we do throughout the year. We also farm those out. So again, last year we had 16 players and four coaches. So essentially a kid would meet every other week or every two or three weeks with one of the four coaches, uh, sometimes at their level, sometimes at their position. Sometimes it's with me just as the head of the program, just again, checking in and really trying to invest in those relationships um, that we expect all of our coaches to, you know, be investing in during the course of the season. So I mean, it's pretty broad and pretty general. And then at the end of the year, we do a lot of reflection together. So I do all the varsity interviews um, at the end of the season, but I take notes in a Google Doc. Like we've got 20 questions that we ask and I'm almost like a stenographer writing as word for word as I can get what the players are saying. And then I share those notes with the staff. I share them with our AD. And then, as I mentioned, we'll get together here in a couple of weeks in April and just kind of go back through what we thought, what we saw, um, and what we think some of the things we'll have to try to solve and figure out for next season will be. So 
we try to include those coaches as much as we can. Um, the worst thing for me, you know, as an assistant, and I've been an assistant in other sports too, is I don't want them to get bored. <laughs> I want them to feel like they have agency and responsibility. I want them to feel like their voice matters and that I trust them. When I give them something to do, I trust that they're going to do it well. Um, and we've certainly benefited from a great staff here at uh, Mount Vernon over the last couple of years. I've been lucky too to work with some really great coaches. Um, there was one though, an assistant coach that I didn't do a very good job of kind of explaining my expectations, probably because I was kind of scared to. So, I mean, like, it's pr probably a pretty simple question, but like, you know, how, how do you how do you have those conversations with the assistant coaches where you say, hey, this needs to change. Yeah, we deal with that a lot, you know, with coaches that we work with. And, you know, sometimes you'll have that anywhere you're at, right? And I think if I could do a little philosophy on the side of that, you know, one of the things that I've found interesting studying Bill Belichick and kind of how the New England Patriots have done things is that if you look at his assistant coaches over the years, you know, he refers to them in, in uh, David Halberstam's book, The Education of a Coach as slapdicks. You know, there are guys that come in. If you think of Josh McDaniels, the first thing he did was pick people up from the airport, get the coffee and donuts, and then he padded the film, meaning that he drew out all the diagrams for every opponent or every, you know, play that they ran in a game. And that's all he did. And then as he was able to do that correctly, and Belichick kind of gave him feedback on, you know, how he wanted that done, then he got a little more responsibility, a little more responsibility. Then eventually, you know, as we know, he becomes the offensive coordinator and now is his own program in Oakland and or Las Vegas, I guess, where the Raiders are at. But there's this idea that, you know, you bring a coach in, they observe what you're doing, you figure out a way for them to add value to that or take ownership over a piece of that. And then as they prove themselves, and if they have an appetite for more, then you kind of bring them along in that way. I know for my coaches, you know, they would tell you, and starting over to a new program, we kept all of the assistants from the previous year. In year one, it was a lot of them observing me. You know, here's how we organize practice. This is our language. These are the drills that we're doing. This is how we're running the offense. Um, and so it's a lot of learning um, and not as much doing for them because I'm old. So I've been doing this for 20 years and we had an idea of how we wanted to build it. In year two, they could do so much of that on their own. You know, and so I, I think a lot of my role in that, at least in that case, is it's mentorship, it's communication. Here's what we're doing and why it's film. You know, we tape all of our practices so they can go back and watch through. And that's one thing our lower level coaches last year when we had split practices, they would watch varsity film from practice the night before and then turn a lot of that into their practice plan, you know, the next morning. So I was fortunate to have a staff that really wants to learn. I think when you run into situations where, there may be philosophical differences. You are more of an up-tempo guy or they want to slow it down or they've only coached the flex or, you know, they their mannerisms and the way that they interact with players. We run into this a lot as coaches start to change and become more transformational, you know, and are working with us to thrive on challenge. Sometimes that's a more difficult transition for assistants because they haven't gone through the same inner growth that the head coach has, right? The change in perspective and the change in value of wanting to, to build relationships first and grow people through the sport rather than using kids to try to win games. And so I think that just requires more and more clear and honest communication, you know, and one of the things that I think has been modeled really well at our school Mount Vernon is that if you want to make a coaching change, because, you know, for example, we have a program where 
they're moving some people out of the middle school program and trying to get some people in that are more aligned with the high school program. Well, the administration's perspective on that is we're not moving them out until it's clear that they're not doing what you are asking. And so that means, you know, Mike Neighbors puts it this way. You have to put them in a place where they either can't do it because they don't know how or they don't you know, have the background or the skills or they won't do it. They understand what you're asking, but they refuse to do it for whatever reason. And when you get to that point, then maybe a change is necessary. But until that point, you have to make it abundantly clear what is expected. Here's why. Here's how. And then it's kind of up to them, you know, and follow up conversations. I think the idea of, again, being curious and trying to understand them more than trying to just regulate them, you know, can be effective as well. Um, and it's not easy. You know, we deal with this a lot. As I said, in our program, it's probably one of the top two or three points of conflict that we see with coaches. But again, as the head coach, it's part learning your staff. It's a hundred percent on you to communicate what's expected and then to follow up with mentorship and guidance. And then ultimately, if it, if it doesn't work out, being willing to let somebody go and find somebody that may fit the program better. All right. I appreciate your time. I just have a couple more questions for you now kind of geared towards the uh, head coach. And so I just wanted to ask you, what are some suggestions that you would have for a coach that they can like self uh, where they could self-assess themselves to, to, uh, to, to find some growth areas beyond just wins and losses? Well, yeah, I think, you know, the things that I was really hunting for in my exit interviews this year, I mentioned a couple of them already. Did our players feel valued? That's mm -hmm. one way. And we asked that question in different ways. Um, I mean, we'll ask them straight away. Did you feel value in your role? We'll ask them, how did you feel that your contributions were appreciated this year? You know, did you feel you had an opportunity to make the team better? Like we, we kind of ask it in three or four different ways. But to me, that's a metric of the relationship that I'm building with that player. Um I think the more open criticism that I get from players, the more that demonstrates that we have a good relationship and that we're building a place of psychological safety. So some coaches, you know, may see that. And this would have been me five, 10 years ago, a little more defensive, a little thinner skin. You know, you come at me and say, I don't feel like I had a chance to compete immediately. I'm in defense mode thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, and I'm trying to justify the decisions that we made. Now I'm seeing that as, I really appreciate the fact that Josie Niehaus can tell me that to my face, that she, you know, didn't feel like she had a chance to compete or she was frustrated that she didn't play more because that allows us to have dialogue and that allows me to, to learn from that perspective. So that's something that I really value, you know, and I use those conversations to, again, gauge just the relationship level with each individual player. I'm really interested in, did the player feel like they got better? You know, and I think that leads me backwards is I, if I, my post players are saying, you know, it felt like we did the same thing over and over. And when I got in this situation in the mid post and they played me like this, I didn't really know what to do. Like that really helps me to say, OK, here's a there's a gap here in what we're trying to teach and how it's being learned, you know, or if there's consistent, uh, a consistent you know theme in some of the feedback, then that prompts me to start reflecting a little bit differently. So. In a lot of ways, I'm just trying to work backwards from the things that we value most, you know, improvement and the relationships with players, that sense of psychological safety and communication. Um, and then looking at myself, how can I improve? What can I do differently so that players are more open or so that players have an opportunity to get better, you know, next year in what we're doing? 
All right. So I want to ask this kind of on, I, I can kind of think of three tracks on this. And so here I'm talking about uh, kind of confidence in yourself as a, as a head coach. And so, you know, uh, I guess with one track, it would be, maybe you had a losing season. Uh, second track is maybe we finished five, 500, uh, third track. And I'm, kind of fortunate because I'm in this one is that like, we want a state title. Of course I feel great, but sometimes I still kind of lack that confidence that, uh, you know, uh, especially with expectations being high going into a next season. So what are some tips that you would have for coaches that might be lacking a little bit of confidence? Well, I love Steve Magnus's, uh, discussion on the topic of confidence. He talks about athletes in his book, do hard things, but there's a phrase in there, and we had him on the, our podcast here a couple of months ago, that confidence requires evidence. And I think when we deal with players, a lot of times we talk about preparation. You know, Kobe Bryant says, look, I've made this pull up at the elbow 15,000 times. Why wouldn't I make it when the game's on the line? Well, that preparation is providing him with evidence that he can do the job, right? And so I think as a coach, look, if you've never had a winning season – you can't bullshit yourself and you know tell yourself, no, you're a state championship caliber coach because your your brain is too smart for that because it's looking for the evidence to see that's true, right? So what we've really tried to do is figure out what is our metric for success. And it is, you know, wins and losses are part of that, but so is improvement, you know, and we look below the hood to see. What's our defensive field goal percentage? First third of the year versus last third of the year. You know, are we finishing better at the three-point line or at the rim? Are we taking better shots? Are we getting more deflections? When we evaluate, you know, our on-ball responsibilities, are we giving up fewer straight line drives in the second half of the season than the first? You know, this year we were five and four before break with a lead in the fourth quarter. After break, we were 11 and one, you know, and that's a metric that we can point to and say something that we're doing must be working somewhere. So, you know, when you have tough seasons and it's just not as simple as saying, you know, a, a phrase that has helped me, I think at Mount Vernon is when I've doubted myself or when I wonder what the parents are thinking or whatever it might be, I come back to they were one in 20. The year before I started, they were one in 20. Then we went 12 and 11. Then we went 16 and eight. We've got a really good group coming back next year. The trajectory is going in a great direction, but it's not just that. And when I started at Mount Vernon, I told our kids at our first meeting, I said, I want basketball to become a place that you look forward to going to. They thought I lost my mind. I, I looked like an alien, you know, speaking some kind of strange language because they didn't look forward to it before, you know, and now two years later, every single kid except the one that we talked about before said, you know, basketball was a place that they looked forward to at the end of the day. They love their teammates. They love what it felt like to be in our gym. That's a metric that gives me confidence that we're moving in the right direction. And it has nothing to do with wins and losses. So I think, you know, again, Magnus is on the right track. You have to look for evidence that there is return on whatever you're investing in. If that's your culture, if that's your personal growth, if that's your ultimately your wins and losses, Maybe that's not always just at the varsity level. Sometimes it could just be, look, we're working really hard on our defensive rotations or our rebounding or whatever it might be. And we can see that there's clear growth there, even if it hasn't led to wins and losses yet. And I do think confidence requires work. You know, it requires giving attention and searching for the evidence. Again, Neighbors talks about we should be diligent enough in finding evidence that our processes work 
just as though we were if we were called on to a trial and there was a jury of our peers that demanded to know, are you a good coach or not, that you would have evidence to present to say, yes, we know what we're doing. And I don't know that coaches always go looking for that evidence. Sometimes they do when their feet are to the fire. But I think we have to do that for ourselves as well. And I'll tell you another thing, as we were building last year in year one, as we're tracking some of those metrics, you know, and some of those simple statistics, we had a meeting with our players the middle of January. And we said, I don't know if you realize how much better we are. We looked at their stats from the year before when they were one in 20 field goal percentage, defensive field goal percentage, rebounding percentage, turnovers, three point percentage or something like that points per game. And then we said, here's where we were the first third of the season. And here's where we are in the last eight games. And the the difference was dramatic. The wins and losses were better, but not great. It wasn't like we became a state championship team overnight. But every kid in their exit interview after year one said that was a turning point for their confidence because they didn't realize it. They They didn't know. And so for us to be able to find that evidence and present it to them, we shared it in our weekly email with parents, you know, and obviously as coaches, that puffs your chest out a little bit when you can see all those things that are working. I think we have to, we have to give effort to that in order to to build our own confidence as well as being stewards of our players' confidence. Oh, that's a great uh, point there. And I'm just thinking to our own season this uh, this year is that I remember when uh, we did a comparison, it was about midway through the season showing them last year's stats to this year's stats. Now, last year's team did qualify for state. Um, they were 12 and 10 at the end of the season. Uh, but this year's team went 20 and five, and you could see that there was a marked difference between last year's team and this year's team. And, uh, as kind of with your point to your team, same thing for ours, it was just kind of like all of a sudden the kids saw that and were like, Hey, we are a pretty good team. We might be able to compete for a state title. Yeah. And changing the narrative of your team like that, you know, that we're good enough to compete, you know, as you're climbing the ladder and you're kind of working your way up there. Um, it's so exciting when you start to see that belief take hold, you know, and I, I can think of a, an example. I shared this at our banquet this year. Um, I don't know exactly when the shift happened for us, but we played the number two team in the state at their place late January and lost by one, missed a shot at the rim that rolled off at the buzzer or whatever. Um, and after that, then we beat the number three ranked team uh, in a couple classes below us, but it was a big upset their first loss of the year. And we played our last conference game at home to a team that we had beaten by three the first time. And we were down, I think we were down 14 to two at the end of the first quarter at home, last home game before the playoffs. So we come into that huddle and I would find out later talking to a couple of parents that I know well, and our principal has a daughter on the team and stuff. And he said, the principal said, man, I was watching that game and I just couldn't believe it. You guys were playing so poorly. I couldn't believe there was all this consternation in the gym everywhere except in our huddle in our huddle my seniors would tell me later she's like uh we never doubted like we knew what was going to happen we were taking good shots you know they lucked in a couple but there was no panic there was no there was a confidence there that wasn't there a month earlier and we go out start the second half on an 18-0 run and blow the doors off and win by 20 in a team that we beat by three three weeks earlier and, you know, to see that kind of confidence take off and take hold of us, that's one of the best feelings in sports that there is. No, I totally agree, Coach. Hey, again, I really appreciate your time. Just real quick, where are some places that uh, coaches can find more information about you and what services you have available for them? 
Yeah, they can just search online uh, for Thrive On Challenge, or you can go to thriveonchallenge.com. JP Nurbin and I do a podcast called the Coaching Culture Podcast, and we drop new episodes every Sunday. And that's really focused on just practical ways to improve your culture. We just had a conversation this morning about, you know, how uh, how much honesty do we give players at the start of the season when it comes to playing time, you know, and how do you have those conversations? And so it's it's not a lot of philosophy. It's really a lot of talk from our, you know, own experiences, just trying to share ways that have worked and share from a lot of failure as far as that goes too. But, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter as well, uh, at Coach N. Sanderson uh, on Twitter. And you can find uh, links to some of our stuff there as well. Well, Coach, I just want to thank you for everything that you do to grow the game. You do an awesome job. I appreciate being on.